We're back. Glenn, it's Green here. And joined by... Oh, oh, fuck. Yep. (laughs) Hey, it's Daniel Biss. And Glenn, it's Green. And we are your co-hosts of Ill-Informed. And we're digging a little deeper down in Springfield, y'all. Inviting you to buckle up on this ride while we spend some time talking about an influential component of lawmaking that often doesn't make it into our living room conversations, at least not mine, when we're talking about the political process. And that is lobbyists. So, where should we start, Daniel? Let's just start by asking what a lobbyist is. So let me... What is a lobbyist? uh, (laughs) I almost got it in. I almost got it in. We could have done the whole podcast in reverse. It would have been great. Um, Anyway. So what is the role of a lobbyist, Daniel? A lobbyist is a person whose job is to influence government. So, So like the... You know, the Constitution goes so far as to give people the individual right to petition their government. But, you know, on a daily basis, most people are living their lives. They're not hanging out in a state capitol building or even calling their legislator. And so lobbyists are people whose job, who are paid to be the voice of somebody in the legislative process. And and by the way, I think this is important to say from the jump, there are basically two types of lobbyists, at least in Springfield. One type is people who like work full-time for a particular organization, like maybe they work for uh, a labor union or maybe they work for a particular company or the Chamber of Commerce or the ACLU, or, mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's their job. And they are there in the Capitol representing that particular organization's point of view at all times. The other type of lobbyist are what kind of most people would refer to as consultants, Mm -hmm. what we call them in Springfield as contract lobbyists, and they might have a whole bunch of different clients. And all of their clients say, hey, I want you to help pass this bill, and I want you to help stop this other bill from passing, and I want you to show up in committee and say this, and I want you to find a legislator to sponsor that bill. And they're getting all these different instructions from all these different clients, and then they have all these different relationships with legislators and they're trying to move the ball forward on behalf of their various different clients, which gets really tricky. Yeah. Because they've got a lot of different uh, goals and they've got to prioritize them somehow. Speaking of prioritizing goals, in episode two, we talked about like how one of the fundamental jobs of a lobbyist is to read all the bills when they become public. Um, And if it's something that they're interested in, they reach out to a bill sponsor and say, hey, I want to talk about this. I'm curious, who 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 gets access to the room? Who's in the room? So the way it works, you know, a bill comes out, all the lobbyists read it, and then, you know, if you're the sponsor, like if I introduced a bill and a lobbyist reads it and they or their client doesn't like it, they'll call me quickly and usually ask for a meeting or a conversation. And Typically, any lobbyist who expresses an objection to a piece of legislation gets their voice heard, right? Like if you if you tr- totally blow them off and ignore them, and then you try to pass the bill, and they come they come and try to get your bill killed by saying the legislator wouldn't even have a conversation with me, that tends to be an effective argument. And as a legislator, are you required to include every lobbyist 
who wants to be a part of the process in the yeah. process or as a part of that meeting? Are you required to add them to the Google calendar? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Send them an invite? Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, it's a great question. No, there's no rules. <laughs> Legislators don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every legislator conducts themselves somewhat differently. Um, but typically— You hear that, y'all? Legislators don't have to do anything. Remember that. Daniel the, said it first. That's the most important rule <laughs> of all. Um, <laughs> typically, again, if, if you, you know, if you're like trying to get a bill out of committee— and the legislator's like, this bill's awesome, and the lobbyist comes to testify and says, no, this bill sucks. Like, you can, you can overcome that a lot of the time, depending on the circumstances. But if the legislator says, this bill's awesome, and the lobbyist says, hey, I hate this bill, and I told the legislator three months ago that I hate this bill, and they refused to meet with me and talk about it, that's a much tougher um, problem to solve as a legislator. A lot of the people on the committee, they're like, I don't necessarily have strong views on the topic, but I'm I'm going to be here as a, a enforcer to make sure that you know there's like decorum and politeness and everybody listens to everybody, and so it's just a it's a tactically dangerous move to not let lobbyists in these meetings. But how does I guess what I'm trying to understand is like how does the voice of a lobbyist carry so much weight? Yeah, I think this is the really the really subtle thing about all this and that this is this is the part of the conversation that I think makes most of us uncomfortable. Right? I think we all have this idea that in a democracy every voice should be heard. It can be rejected eventually, but every voice should be heard. Well, when I think about my neighborhood, I I know a lot of people in my neighborhood who have opinions about public policy. But I don't know a lot of people in my neighborhood who have ever emailed, and they've often emailed me as a legislator saying, hey, Daniel, I wish you would do X or not do Y. But they've never emailed and said, hey, can I be a part of the meetings in the Capitol building to talk about Bill Z? Because like, that's a crazy thing for a person who doesn't live near Springfield to email. Like, people live their lives. And so the, the mechanism by which the lobbyist voice is heard is not a mechanism that's really available to most people. Because of proximity to Springfield? The whole or, thing, right? Like okay. most people are not – don't imagine that they're going to have their voices heard by being in a technical meeting full of people in suits in the middle of a weekday in, in the Capitol. Like that's not how people live their lives. Right. Okay. Let's back it up. How is the work of a legislator similar or different from the work of a lobbyist? So I think the right way to get to the answer to this question is to make an observation that most people find kind of shaking of their vision of – legislation. Mm -hmm. Legislators don't have a lot of staff. They don't have a lot of help. They don't have a lot of time Mm -hmm. per bill. And so they're kind of on their own a lot of the time. Lobbyists tend to fill in all those gaps. So they're like outsourcing the work. Yes, exactly. A tremendous amount of what I think most people imagine should be the work done by government workers, which is to say legislators and their staff, because legislators tend to be very short-staffed, gets outsourced to lobbyists. And that is like across the board. Part of that's writing bills. Part of that's conducting these negotiations. Part of that is doing background research. So like one thing that that those of us in politics often sort of um, like chuckle at is you'll hear a lot of complaints about a particular bill, like, oh, my God, lobbyists wrote that bill. And then it's sort of embarrassing when that gets said in the newspaper about a particular bill. (laughs) Dude, they write almost all the bills. Oh, the tea. Right, so, like, 
like, you know, one, one topic that I think is really important is agenda setting, mm-hmm. right? Pe- people often wonder, you know, how could you, how come lobbyists are so powerful? Do they persuade legislators to vote opposite of their own values all the time? How, how could you possibly go through life as a legislator voting for a bunch of stuff you don't believe in just because lobbyists told you to? Well, maybe lobbyists don't persuade legislators to do that so often, but they do persuade legislators to push a particular issue as opposed to a different issue because if there's a lobbyist there to help you do that staff work, you actually might write a more coherent bill. Right. You might have a better framed argument to, to persuade people to vote for the bill. How does someone become a lobbyist? Most often, the path into becoming a lobbyist is working as a staffer in the legislature. So you get to know the players and you get to know the process. This might be a silly question, but like, what does it mean to work as a staffer? It's not a silly question at all. It means, um, you know, maybe you're helping legislators uh, write the bills or you're helping legislators um, figure out how to get the votes or you're helping legislators, right. you know, figure out how to how to make the argument or, or craft the legislation or deal, do the compromise. I mean, all this stuff that, you know, politicians supposedly do is usually being done by somebody else. And that's mm. that's the staff. So many questions. So the, who do you think gets paid more? Someone who works as a staffer inside the government? Or a lobbyist for the banks. Oh, I know that question. How do you I know? know the answer to that question? <laughs> <laughs> it's the lobbyist. Ding, 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 ding. Glennis, you're never wrong. You're never wrong. <laughs> Appreciate you. And so, what happens is when you have that job on the staff side, you see that people who are making quadruple your salary are doing a similar thing but working less hard, and it's not hard to figure out where. Even the best-intentioned people eventually land because, you know, paying the rent's hard. So what is the most positive spin that you could possibly put on what this whole thing is all about? I think there's two aspects to it. Uh, One which is without a doubt positive or potentially positive, is that these folks can bring real expertise, right? In an environment where there's thousands of bills, you know, there are not enough staff to do the kind of detailed analysis and technical work that most citizens would assume their legislature is doing before passing bills. Mm -hmm. You know, having a whole bunch of other people who have access to information, who are themselves knowledgeable and experienced, kind of um, inserting information into the policymaking process is good. The other thing that I think is potentially genuinely positive, but also without question problematic, is that it is enormously difficult for any kind of ordinary entity of any kind to properly have its voice heard in the policymaking process, whether that's you or me as a human being or whether it's an organization or whether it's a collection of people. You know, Springfield is far from most of the state and the whole legislative process, as we are learning throughout the uh, podcast, Ill-Informed, is arcane and weird and bizarre and has all these customs and habits. And a lobbyist is a agent, essentially, to create representation in that process for an entity that otherwise would be unrepresented. Yeah, but what about the people who have 
gone through great lengths to represent themselves in their communities? Oh, like would they also be considered as lobbyists? And one of the things I'm thinking about back in, um, I think it was like 2015. I used to work for a very large nonprofit doing policy-relevant research and evaluation uh, in education, like at the federal, state, and local level. And one of the stories that came out at that time was about a woman named Debbie Shafee, which I'm sure you're you're smiling, so I'm sure you have a a story of your own about that. But um, she was really organizing around a rewriting of a school formula that would cut almost like, I think, like $4 million from her daughter's school district. And I think her background was like in accounting and like finance. And so she understood how the budget worked and formulas. And she began to advocate for herself and her school district, and it really worked in her favor. Um, and and as na- now, I believe, maybe to this day, I don't know what the current status of, of, of her role in Springfield is, but a lot of people have gone to her seeking consultation on school finance-related issues at the state level. And I, I, you know, I think we saw something similar with um, the sterogenics plant in Willowbrook that was, like, releasing ethanol oxide and, like, people, and who knows if it's, like, correlated, but there were people on the block who had uh, gotten cancer around that time, and they had done a lot of organizing to try to get the plant shut down. I mean, these are critical, two very important examples of times in which, like, common folk, I would say, um, did what you are describing lobbyists do. Would they also be considered lobbyists? No, they wouldn't, um, but they do. They wound up playing essentially the same role that a lobbyist would play, right? This this woman, Debbie Chafee, is a really kind of remarkable example. There was a very, very intense um, negotiation about the school funding reform bill, and this one woman who lived in the South Suburbs kind of just looked at the impact it would have on her own daughter's school. And got really fired up. And in that situation, most people discover either that they don't know what to do or else that they don't have time to do what they need to do. And she essentially just refused to accept either of those possibilities and started making a bunch of phone calls. And I remember one day the phone rang in my office. And, you know, I don't, she's not in my district. I was, mm-hmm. you know, she was in the south suburbs. I was in the north suburbs. Yeah. And my phone rang. And it was... Debbie Chafee with a million questions, and she was asking simultaneously substantive and procedural questions, right? Like, <laughs> explain to me why the bill says this and this and this, but yeah. like, also, what do I do to kill this monstrosity <laughs> so that my daughter's school doesn't doesn't lose $4 million? And, yeah. and she, she did it effectively enough that I, who, by the way, was on the opposite side of the issue from her, I, she just became a person I listened to, and I, I was in contact with her. We emailed, we, we spoke on the phone, and she did, she did that with others. And she didn't register as a lobbyist. She was not a lobbyist in the legal definition of the word. She didn't have to pay the licensing fee to the Secretary of State's office. Mm-hmm. But she did the very thing that a lobbyist that she would have hired would have done for her. But what? So then, what is the what are the key distinctions between lobbyists and people? lobbying to 
represent their own interests. There's a simple, concrete difference. She wasn't getting paid. It wasn't her job. She was acting as a citizen, just trying to influence the legislative process as a citizen according to her First Amendment rights. And and so there's a legal definition in the law about what a lobbyist is, and someone who is a lobbyist who meets that definition has to file a registration, and their their name is listed on a public website. And I remember, you know— when I stopped being a legislator and started calling people in the legislature to ask them about legislation, I like had to go look up the law. Do I have to register as a lobbyist mm-hmm. now? It turns out I don't because I'm not doing all that stuff, and obviously no one pays me to do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is a technical definition, and it's the idea is really if you're an agent of somebody else. Yeah. And what Debbie Chafee exactly was was an agent of herself, not an agent of somebody else. Now, in both of these situations, and I, you know, it's just something as I'm thinking about like access and and equity, you have. Um, Suburban white folks who had who then had access to these spaces in which um, they were able to influence the legislature. You know, is this something that do you feel that same access would have been provided if these were folks, organizers of color around the same issues? So you're right. The people we're talking about are suburban white folks and I think it's obviously not a coincidence. And so so let's ask why. Part of it, of course, is just racism, that when a white person knocks on the door of a legislator or a high-level staffer in Springfield, they, on average, get a different response than a person of color. But right. there's a lot more to it than just that, for sure. Part of it is a simple question of all this stuff we're talking about takes a bunch of time. And who is likeliest to have that time? Mm-hmm. Well, from what socioeconomic place does a person likely to have that time most likely come? Obviously, that population is already overwhelmingly skewed white in our society. It also goes beyond that as well. I think we ought to just be really honest about the fact that legislators are often thinking about campaign fundraising. And so when a person calls a legislator talking about their passion about policy, are they likely to get a more detailed, thoughtful response if the legislator thinks in the back of their head this is a potential donor? Yeah. I suspect the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah. But I also think it goes even beyond that, which is which members of the legislature are the party leaders most careful to be attentive to? And the answer is it's the members of the legislature who are in districts that they think they're likeliest to lose. Yeah. And those districts these days are mostly... Majority white, suburban, affluent districts. And those are the legislators, the the party leaders are like, we got to look out for you so we get you reelected and you come back here. All these different factors pile on top of each other and add up to a very uh, significant systemic bias. And, And I think that's to me the challenge of this whole part of the conversation we're having that if it's good for some people to have representation, well, let me say it this way. It's good for all people to have representation. It's right. good for all views to be equally yeah. heard. And the the nature of this question of what a lobbyist is and where they come from means that almost inevitably some voices will be heard more than others. You know, I think of an analogy in the legal system where you have a right, if you're accused of a crime, to legal defense. Mm-hmm. There's a public defender who's obligated to take the case of everybody who's defending themselves against a criminal charge in a court of law. Yeah. That's not how it works in lobbying. Mm-hmm. If you have a point of view, there's no public lobbyist who has to take your case on if you're going up against a big, well-funded interest. Yeah. And that imbalance, I think, is just heard across our entire system of government. 
we probably should provide some examples to really illustrate how lobbyists actually affect the process. Tell us the story, Daniel. I would invite the audience <laughs> to think back with me and Glennon's to the halcyon days of 2011. Uh, so back in 2011, uh, ComEd, the utility company, wanted to pass this bill. And the idea for the bill is there would be a big rate hike, and then they would use some of that money they got in to invest in a whole bunch of new sort of grid modernization programs. This bill was really unpopular because it was a you know an electric rate hike on everybody, a, a pretty regressive thing that would you know be hard, frankly, on, on working families. And you know, I felt at the time that if you looked at the numbers, they were asking for way more money than they needed, and it was going to just line the pockets of corporations. Other people disagreed with that, you know, but certainly there were people who felt that as well. And so they hired just oceans of lobbyists, tons of lobbyists. And, you know, at the time, Pat Quinn was the governor, and it was clear he was going to veto the bill. So they didn't only need enough votes to pass the bill. They needed enough votes to then override the governor's inevitable veto. So they needed mm-hmm. then not 60 but 71 votes in the House and not 30 but 36 votes in the Senate. And they worked it and they hired people. And, you know, as a legislator, more and more lobbyists came and talked to us. And it was, like, clear that there was a tremendous amount of pressure building and building and building. And then when the votes came, they had enough votes to pass the bill but not enough votes to override a veto. I think they had like 67 votes in the House. There were four short, and there were five votes short in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And people who opposed the bill felt like this was victory. It's it's over yeah. because it's going to go to the governor. He's going to veto it. It's going to come back to the legislature. And all these other folks have already voted against this thing. They've already told their constituents, I'm against raising your electric rates. How are they going to tr- come back and then vote to override the veto after having already, you know, voted no the first time around. And so all this happened, which is to say the bill went to the governor. The governor vetoed the bill. Every lobbyist in Springfield got hired to work on this. And they were, you know, coming to legislators all the time and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And when it came time for the vote to override the veto, the vote passed. So there were a number of people, not even one or two, but, you know, something closer to a dozen who had voted no on this unpopular piece of legislation the first time, went home for the summer, bragged to their constituents about how they voted no, and then went back to Springfield and voted yes the next time because the pressure from the lobbyists was that significant. So these lobbyists that were at the table were in favor of the hike? There there were lobbyists on each side because— well, but it sounds like there was more pressure. There, there was more pressure on the side of the hike. That's right. There was more. I mean, listen. There was more money being made by ComEd from Obviously. all of this. Yeah. You know, from all of their benefit of the rate hike, and so they were very willing to hire a whole bunch of people to make it happen. By the way, as soon as the vote was over, like literally the minute the vote was over, one of Madigan, Speaker Madigan's top staffers in the House chamber walked. Out of the House chamber, out the front door to the what they call the rail, there's a brass railing mm. right outside the House floor where all the lobbyists stand. And he walked up to a, a former legislator who's like Madigan's best friend and one of the lobbyists who's closest to Madigan and walked up to him and shook his hand and then walked back onto the House floor. In other words, a deal had been cut between a, a government guy on working for Madigan and a lobbyist guy working for Madigan 
when this enormous amount of special interest money was at stake. So what exactly were the lobbyists doing to put pressure on the legislature, those in favor of the hike specifically? Because, like, how did it go from them being like, oh, I did a good thing. I, like, voted against this, and then now the summer is over, and I'm voting for it. Like, what were the lobbyists actually doing that changed that? Yeah, I think that's the amazing thing, right? And it's hard, it's so hard to imagine, right, before you're in that situation. Like, what 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 are they going to do that's going to matter? Are they going to break my legs? Yeah, like, what's, what's exactly. Supposed to be doing? <laughs> like, and, you know. And part of it's just literally like they keep coming to you and arguing and making more points, and they're like, "Hey, you know, Senator, do you have any questions?" And you know, if and you, then ask, you say no, I don't have any questions. Well, if you right, if you say no, then they're in a they're in kind of a, a you know pickle. But if you like out of politeness, ask a question, then they go, you know, commission a study and they come back to you with the result of the study and they, they feel like they've answered the question. They also will like, they'll, you know, make sure that everybody who works for the company and, you know, ComEd has a tremendous number of staff, everybody who works for the company in your district calls you and their family calls you. So you've got this feeling that a lot of your constituents want it. They'll, you know, do a tour of your district to show you how many jobs are being created in your district by this kind of thing. There's obviously a tremendous amount of much shadier stuff. They're giving out campaign contributions and, you know, I think indicating a willingness to give out more campaign contributions. You know, they were able to build a coalition. So, you know, once they did the work, um, it would be done with uh, union labor. And so they were able to get some of the unions who would be, um, you know, for whom th- these jobs would be created to get on board as well. And so that sort of obviously looked much more attractive to a, to a lot of members than just ComEd being for a rate hike. And but what were the lobbyists on the other side of the fence doing while they were over there working the magic? I mean, they were doing the, the same sort of thing. They were making the arguments and you know writing, they were writing letters to the editor and and you know having. But what made that? What made those lobbyists much more compelling to the legislature I, than the lobbyists on this side of the fence? Think, I'm just trying to understand. I think ultimately, in this case, it was literally volume, right? So oh, like, okay. if, you know, if you imagine a basketball game, but like one team, once it gets to overtime, gets to have seven guys on the floor instead of five. Yeah. It just stops. Changes the game. It changes the game yeah, completely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Right? So it was just kind of like that. Because, because there was so much money at stake for ComEd, they could just keep hiring yeah. more people uh, until they won. So how often does, does this kind of thing happen? Is this the norm? So this, I would say this type of thing happens regularly, but it's like it's like its own category. So we did it around Uber. There was an effort to regulate Uber, and there was a yeah. big fight between Uber and the taxi and the cabs. Taxi, I remember. It, it yeah. happens around um, um, whatever you call like DraftKings, mm-hmm. uh, like um, uh, 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 fantasy, uh, fantasy sports, football, right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, da- daily, like they it. call it daily <laughs> fantasy sports. Which is, yeah, and, you know, it, it tends to happen around the regulation of a industry with a. Giant ton of money in it, yeah. And it's you know, it would I would say during my time in the legislature it would happen on average once a year. So it was not like just that one time, but it wasn't it wasn't like all the time either. Are there limitations or or restrictions on what kind of money or sources or contributions that lobbyists can accept from interest groups and organizations? I don't think so. There there are definitely kind of ethical canons of the profession where they're not supposed to. You know, have two clients that have opposing positions on a mm-hmm. given issue, and then there's rules about like how much money they're allowed to spend buying meals for legislators, mm, okay. and, and you know they have to report that money they spend on buying meals for legislators. But there's very little else that's reported and very little else that's restricted. Wow. 
Can I register to become a lobbyist? For sure. But you got to pay a fee. How much is the fee? I think it's a grand unless you're a, like a what? public interest lobbyist. If you're a public interest lobbyist, I think it's like half that or a third that. First of all, where does this money go? The government. I mean, where? They need it. <laughs> you know, we gotta, I, we need to talk about that. You know, we, we do have an episode on budgeting coming up. <laughs> yeah, on the for budget, sure. So, yeah, that's a good place for that. Um, can, can I just tell one more quick story about this yeah, comment? I think it's, it's like please, utterly bananas. Because I'm still, like, my mind is is still pretty blown at all the, the lobbyists in Springfield. So this story is not 100% <laughs> on topic, but it's, it's close enough and it's funny enough. Okay. So during, like, the final veto override on that ComEd bill, there was a meeting of, like, around 20 members of the House, including me, mm-hmm. off the floor. We were not... The House chamber was like they were in action. They were voting on stuff. But we were somewhere else on the first floor of the Capitol building talking about the budget. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting in this meeting, and someone gets a text message, one of my colleagues, and they're like, whoa, 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 they're voting on ComEd. And, like, everyone, it just gets everyone flees. <laughs> and we get up there, and we don't make it in time. What? We don't make it in time. And the vote finished. And so what happened? How do they call— how do they call a vote without everybody being oh, there? Oh, I'm sorry. Let me, I, yeah, I was very unclear. They didn't call us to vote. Okay. Someone happened to text one of us to let us know that they were voting. But I'm saying, how do you have a vote without— They just do. Is that is that, a, the, is that common? All the time. What? All the time. So they had this vote, and— <laughs> Hold on. It gets better. You can't interrupt me yet because okay, it's okay. so much more okay, okay, crazy I'll, I'll let you finish. Nonsense. I'll let you finish. So, so they had this vote, and then they ran around and pushed the buttons. The staff ran around the, the floor of the House and pushed the buttons, green for yes or red for no, of the members of the House. Who weren't present? Who weren't present. Get out. Which happens all the time. Are you serious? All the time. But here's the thing. They voted yeah. everybody yes. Is that a real thing? Are you for real? All the time. But 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 check this out. They voted everybody yes, except for the people who they thought were politically vulnerable because it was a bad vote, right? It was unpopular to hike people's rates. So if they thought you were politically vulnerable, they voted you no. And if they thought you were politically safe because they wanted to pass the bill because they cut the deal with the lobbyist, yeah. they voted you yes. And we all got back to the floor and it was already over. So. So what happens if you—I would be so mad. So what? people were incredibly pissed. I bet. And though that happens all the time, it usually doesn't happen with that many people off the floor on a truly important vote. How many people are off the floor? It was like 20 people. Get out. And, and 20 people are off the floor all the time, but yeah, not but usually not on a super important—not yeah. on a super important vote like that. And, and so— the governor, who was, like, really mad, right, because this was how his veto was being overridden by people who weren't even there and didn't even necessarily want to vote that way and were themselves mad that staff had pushed that green button for them. The governor called this button gate, and he was going to— Who are people? Who are the people that are pushing the buttons? So it's staff. It's literally staff of the—who work. It's another thing we talked earlier the about staffers? legislative staff. It's legislative staff. They stand on the floor, and— How if, do they have the—like, do, they don't get in trouble for doing that? It's their job. They get paid to do that. Okay, so what, who are these staffers representing? The legislature or Madigan? So I want, I want us to put a pin in that question okay. because it's going to come back in future episodes. But they, the staff, like the staff who would vote my button, 
they weren't my staff. That wasn't someone I hired. It wasn't like, this wouldn't be that bad if like it was somebody I hired and we had a meeting that morning where we talked about what I believed about all the bills that might come up and they knew and they had a list in front of them. No, no, no. They didn't work for me. They worked for the leader. When I was in the House, they worked for, worked for Mike Madigan, the Speaker. And when I was in the Senate, they worked for John Collerton, the Senate President. And it's their staff that's voting the buttons of all the Democratic members of the relevant chamber. Is And what can you do about it as a senator? Well, I, I can give them instructions. No, I'm saying I after can, you've come in, you've come in and they've already voted and and it's in opposition to some, or it's, it's okay. just a different vote from what yep. you would have voted. What would you do? Okay, so here's, there's basically there's two things that can happen in that situation. Okay. One is you can get up and be like, hey, I just want to put on the record that I didn't, I intended to vote differently. And you'll, if you actually like sit around and read transcripts, you'll see people with all kinds of hilarious euphemisms like, hey, my button wasn't working properly. I, I pushed red, but green lit up. There's a lot of that on the record. What people really mean is I was off the floor and the staff voted me wrong. But, but there's, so another, they, there's another thing that happened. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Why do they need to say that if it's legal for staff to be doing that? Because it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. And so they don't want it. They don't want it like to say that. So they, then, why have staffers do it? Because they don't like people don't like to be on the floor. Oh my god! But, but that's your job. Well, <laughs> you're not wrong. Um, but there's this there's this other one other thing that happens, which is also really interesting and funny, which is that I can't wait for this episode to drop. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell the last part. Okay, okay, okay. This is so good. One one move that you can pull if there's a controversial bill that you don't like that barely passes is you can be like, when after it passes, you can be like, hey, I want to request a verification. (laughs) And what a verification means is the person who's presiding over the chamber reads out loud the names of everybody who's supposedly voted yes. Yeah. And if they're not in the chamber, then the the people who requested the verification can be like, hey, Daniel's not here, remove his name. And unless I show up back in the chamber before this conversation ends, my, is- my vote gets removed. Okay. And if that if the if the votes that get taken off the list because the person who supposedly voted yes is in fact not in the room, bring the total under 30, the bill no longer passes. So in practice, what happens is that someone requests a verification and then there's a frantic effort when everybody on staff is calling and texting and trying to figure out where the legislators are and get them back to the floor in time, and usually the person who's reading the names does it really slowly on purpose to give <laughs> staff a chance to call people back. And there's like very weird childish theatrics of like, oh, no, no, Daniel must be in the bathroom. Hold on. Let me go look <laughs> in the other stall. And like all because all because people just aren't physically there to vote for the bill. Oh, boy. Uh, I think we're running out of time. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're running out of hope, I think. Yeah. Boy, there is so much here. I had no idea that that happened and happens and is like such a common common thing. Boy, I mean, I I just, yeah, I'm still processing. I think in thinking about just kind of reel it all on in because we do have to wrap up soon. Lobbyists in their current state representing institutions and interests, is it a good thing? No. But it's— Why not? Because it, t- it, it puts the thumb on the scale. It's a very significant way where 
interests that have money behind them get heard differently than interests that don't. It doesn't mean there shouldn't be lobbyists. It doesn't mean that there's not an important role for them. But I think that their fundamental um, role in government right now is a thumb on the scale of people for whom the rest of the system is also designed to benefit. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I mean, it's usually if you ask questions, people think about them in a very binary way. So, like, no, it's not a good thing. But does that necessarily mean that it's a bad thing? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's a. I think if you were to just fire all the lobbyists and not change anything else, that would probably be bad, right? It might remove the thumb from the scale, but also remove a lot of kind of information and social capital from the system. And I don't think that would be good either. I, yeah. I just think that we need to reform the system in fundamental ways so that it's not just another way that people who already are doing well have an opportunity to do yet better. Yeah, yeah, I agree. does it for our episode on lobbying. It was a good one. How do you feel? You know, this was a conversation that made me feel like um, maybe when I was a state legislator for eight years, I was living in a different planet than the yeah, rest of Illinois. you are. You were on Pluto. It's good to be back. And it doesn't even exist anymore. I can't believe they did that to Pluto. <laughs> it kills me. I I can't me even too. sleep at night anymore. What you know? We we had a good thing going with Pluto. We really did. I don't know. It's one person just has to go mess it up for all of us. <laughs> no. Science. Science. It's a wonderful thing. Um, and with that, join us next week on Ill Inform. What are we talking about in the next episode? The budget. The budget. A lot of levity that time. All right then. Until next time. Bye bye. Hi there, this is Casey, co-founder of State Matters and producer of Ill-Informed. Thank you so much for listening and taking an interest in learning more about how this wacky stuff works in Springfield and how you can get involved to make the state better. If you support what we do, please consider making a donation at statematters.org. Even $10 makes a difference and also gives that little boost that someone out there is supporting the work we're doing. Again, you can donate at www.statematters.org. And while you're at it, rate and review this podcast to help more folks find us. Thanks.